it's really important for students and new midwives to be cognizant of what to, what they don't know. And that's a hard thing to conceptualize, but staying open to learning and continually chasing um, evidence-based care is, is a lifetime journey. It's, we, we never arrive. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. To the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, and I have some amazing guests. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Ilka has been my soul sister from last year, so I'm going to prod you to go first. Can I do that, Ilka? Okay. Hello, my name is Ilka, and I live in Berkeley, California, and I'm the apprentice of this amazing duo over here, Michelle Borak and Alana Diame. Love working with them. And Soul Sister of Augustine. That's a good title. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good title. Well, uh, Alana, you had kind of the inspiration to put this together. Will you, will you give us your intro? Yes, definitely. So um, I'm Alana Diamos. I'm a licensed midwife, a certified professional midwife. I'm also a registered nurse. Um, and I've been a community midwife for 13 years now. Um, yeah, and was really inspired to get together and talk about this. Um, I've been like geeking out on IA guidelines and protocols. I was working at the San Francisco Birth Center and it became clear that it would be good for us all to be doing something more similar to one another. Um, and was just really flabbergasted by how many different ways there are to do this seemingly pretty simple thing. So yeah, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that simple thing is uh, many areas of midwifery, but today we're going to be focusing on fetal heart tones. So that's exciting. Michelle, welcome. Will you give us your intro? Sure. Thank you. Um, my name is Michelle Borok. I'm a licensed midwife and certified professional midwife. I practice in the Bay Area in California. Um, and I just love geeking out with these folks. And I'm so excited to meet you. Yeah, I'm so excited to meet you too. I think we had plans to meet last year, but I was unfortunately bedbound and so glad that I am back to sitting upright in the world. And um, so great to see you both and your smiling faces and know that Ilka is sitting at your feet and learning. It's fantastic. So um, 
first of all, I would say we, we do on Midwifery Wisdom, we do have a course on fetal heart tones and it is um, live and at your own pace e-course. And I think you guys have taken that, yeah? And that is what started some questions. Well, so one of the premises that I have and what caused me to create this course is that, like you said, there are so many different methods, styles, opinions, thoughts, um, and actual techniques of doing heart tones. And I wanted to bring together the evidence and create a really clear cut evidence-based step-by-step process for community-based midwives to say that they actually can verify that they have a low risk, healthy babe, um, what we're calling a category one, uh, while they're at home doing that monitoring. And, um, you know, we hear all kinds of things from the medical community, things like, oh, you can't actually effectively tell hard tones unless you're doing fetal monitoring or things like, um, you know, you're only going to catch real disasters. Um, and then of course there's a really, uh, what would you say negative, uh, community or medical model response to community birth in general. So there's not a lot of consensus about what, um, what to do. Um, I travel around the United States teaching. I have for the last almost 10 years, and I hear widely varying protocols and techniques. Um, you know, you listen every hour, listen every 15 minutes, you know, um, if it's outside of, you know, 120 to 160, it's a problem, you know, all these various myths or habit thinking that has, has passed down through the years. And one of the reasons that's happening is that most of our preceptors, um, came to midwifery through nursing. Um, now that isn't necessarily always the case in, in this last decade, but previous to the 2000s, um, we had almost all preceptors who rose to real um, uh, familiarity and, and were busy in the country um, had, come through had come to midwifery through nursing in some way. Um, either their preceptor or they themselves were registered nurses and chose the CPM route instead of the CNM route. And I've oftentimes reflected about how much that changes what we know to be true, because what's happening in the hospital is so different than what's happening out of the hospital. There needs to be incredibly different protocols. So we, right now we have national advocacy organizations and conversations around the different provider types, CNM, CM, CPMs, and then the different routes to CPM midwifery. And then there's even you know, DOs and MDs attending home births, and there's naturopathic physicians who get trained as midwives. And we focused a lot on the different provider types, but I'm having this really strong focus that we need to focus on location of care. So there are hospital protocols and there are community-based protocols. And there's absolutely no reason for there to be any different protocols for folks who practice out of the hospital because the resources are different. So I came together, created this course, and I'm glad you guys had a chance to see it. And I, I bet you have some questions. That's why we're here. So um, do you have your questions sort of formulated? Do you, do you feel like you have a place you could start? Alana? Muted. Yeah, we, um, I mean, I had, let me start at the beginning. So the course that we took, all three of us went through it and had a chance to sort of bounce ideas off one another. I think um, some of the questions that came up for us and definitely for me had to do with just like real rubber hits the road. Like, what does this actually look like in a chart? Because there's some great yep. information, of course, that's talking about like, 
the more you document, the better, which is also really controversial, right? You take a lot of different courses and listen to a lot of different really well-experienced midwives. And there's, there are a lot of people who are like, do not document like the actual data of what you heard, just document more narrative form and using your ranges and your baseline. So I really appreciated that in your course in particular, you really say in there strongly, like more data is more defensible, write down everything you hear. And then I'm also, because I was trained in such a different style, um, it just feels really overwhelming to try to understand like how do you put 10 minutes of baseline listening of five, six, five, six second counts. Like what does your chart end up looking like? And then also just, you know, this is why I really wanted to sit with somebody who has this level of experience, like in the trenches and at home births, because there's also all these times, right? Where like you're attending a second timer, a third timer, you walk in, you barely have time to set up, let alone write in your chart, like, and the range is this. And yeah, I, so much. Yeah. So I just like yeah. really was interested in trying to pick your brain in terms of like taking this very sort of like, you know, here is the pristine sort of like optimal way to do something and really have more of a like, hey, brass tacks, like, what are we looking at? What is your chart? What do you do when totally. you walk? Totally. These are such great leading questions. I like want to pause you there because I have so many things to share. So um, first of all, I, I want to talk about the in intersectionality here of actual clinical care and what I call defensive charting right? Because we, we really don't practice in a vacuum. There's nothing that you're doing that isn't potentially reviewed by state organizations, licensing boards, lawyers, the public. Um, you know, midwifery as it is right now is really practicing in a fishbowl. Even in legal states, we are under review, we are under observation, um, and a lot of times under pressure and even persecution. So we can't imagine how we're practicing without always thinking about um, the, the, the worst case scenario. Um, and that is uh, how we're going to defend our actions. Um, so defensive charting in, is the sort of the, is another course I created. And this is a way to kind of conceptualize how we are both legally and ethically recording the appropriate data while at the same time protecting ourselves from this highly litigious environment where we practice. So how do you uh, get the data that you need and then record it in such a way that you tick all those boxes? And so, like you said, uh, brass tacks, rubber it's the, meets the road. Um, this is the, the, the general, not general, the very specific formula that I, that I recommend. And that is that when you arrive at somebody's house, no matter whether they're primate, multi, it doesn't matter. When you arrive, do heart tones. How long do you do them? Long enough to establish baseline because from there, everything else gets determined. So baseline is, as defined by ACOG and others, um, the most common beaded number rounded to the fifth point um, over at least a 10 minute time. So we have to listen for at least 10 minutes to establish baseline. That is from its very definition. So when you arrive at somebody's house, even if they're a precepting multip, there has to be someone glued to that belly attempting to gather 10 minutes of the listen. And when you think about this in real life, some questions come to mind. How do you set up if you're busy listening to hard tones? Are there enough people to do all the jobs that need to be done? 
So if you walk in and you're the only one, you're the first one to arrive, the rest of your team hasn't arrived. And, for, and teamwork is, is absolutely essential in midwifery. It's lovely to see this team right here. Um, teamwork is essential because you do need more than one hands. It is absolutely impossible to do all the jobs in an emergency with one person. We've proven that many times. Um, so we need the team. But if the team hasn't arrived yet because home birth is that, is that wild card, um, we have to do the minimum safety requirements. So the minimum is that you have some kind of barrier. So you have gloves on, right? You, you have the basic of heart tones and you have the ability to resuscitate that baby or stop a hemorrhage. That's the most basic. So midwives can do this ahead of times by packing a grab and go bag, right? So you can have your whole kit, all the bags and boxes and all the stuff we shuttle in, but there should be a one bag that has an ambu bag that has already pit drawn up or has pit, you know, with all the ingredients all in one little pocket. So somebody could draw it up and it has, um, you know, a towel, gloves and your Doppler. Like that should, that should be a grab and go bag so that the essentials, how is this baby stop bleeding and help this baby get here? Um, those should be all together so that you don't have fumble. You don't have to try to do something. Um, the number of consult calls I've taken uh, from midwives who have poor outcomes um, and how many of them were busy setting up tubs instead of doing heart tones is really a shocking statistic. So, you know, really focus on what matters. Her, her pain at that moment is actually not the priority. And uh, if I could communicate anything to, to midwives in the United States, it would be like, you are not doulas. Don't try to be doulas. There's a whole profession for doulas, higher doulas, but that's not your job. As a primary midwife, you are a midwife. So you have to do your job, which is monitoring the safety of both. So the first thing is take baseline. If we're not in a precipitous situation, there's literally nothing more important than sitting with that baby and assessing baseline. And while you're doing that, smile at the mama, encourage the mama, right? Tell me when you last ate. Talk to the birther about, you know, how, if they slept, if they've had a bowel movement, where they feel the pain, you know, like these are all the conversations that we have. But meanwhile, in the background, we're listening and establishing that baseline. So in order to effectively establish baseline, those of us who've been doing it for years, you know, you can just listen and do it because we're like a metronome in our head. We know what, I mean, I can tell you what 120, 130, 150 is even across the room. I don't even need to look at a watch. You guys could probably do the same. You've been doing it long enough. But for new students or new midwives who are still trying to conceptualize what this looks like, um, it, it, there's a very simple formula to do it. So um, on your phone or on a piece of paper, you can have 60 spots. Because 10 minutes, well, let me, let me back up one step further. Um, so how, how often we listen is a part of this too, right? So you can count with your watch. You can count for five second counts. You can count six second counts. You can count 10 or 15 second counts to get the average number. And you do that multiple times in a minute, yeah? Most midwives defer to the six second count because it's, it's uh, easier to add a zero instead of do the eights math, right? And in fact, now um, there's some new, uh, actually they're not two new studies, but there's some studies that show that that is the standard. Um, even from A1 and ACOG and whatever, the standard is to listen every six seconds. Um, but we can't listen every six seconds. We listen every 10 because it takes six seconds to count and then four seconds to recycle your brain so that you can start again counting.
am I right? You know what I mean? Like it's, we don't go six, 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 the brain, the human brain actually can't process faster than that. We always need a moment to reset, find the stopwatch, find the moment, et cetera, et cetera. So really we're getting counts every 10 seconds, right? Even though there's six second averages. So there are six counts, you know, in that minute, if that makes sense, right? So um, there are 10 minutes, six counts, there's 60 listen spots. Does this make sense? So to do it in a formulaic way, you can get 60 data points and be able to say from that, what is the most common beaded number from those 60 data points? Um, if there is not a common beaded number and removing, you know, we remove the two outliers, the lowest and the highest, and from the, from the rest, if their range is more than 25 beats per minute, then what you have actually determined is that you have market variability. You can't determine baseline because the only way to determine baseline is if it's, first of all, in the normal range, 120 to 160, and second of all, if there is moderate or minimal or certainly absent variability, although we hope that's not the case because that's one of the most concerning issues. So we can determine baseline by listening for 60 data points, finding the most common beaded number and rounding all of those we round to, to, the, to the fifth um, so that 120, 125, 130, 135. And that is how we determine baseline. So in terms of um, you know, real life scenario, I think you can imagine that you have a, you have a Doppler, you show up at a house, and you assess well-being for 10 minutes, yeah? You know how to interpret that data, right? Yeah, so, so now the question is like, what's next? How, how do we continue to assess this baby? And so we wanna listen often enough that we catch variations that are concerning, like D-cells, like um, brandycardia, but not so often that we're actually disturbing the labor and impacting the very course of care. So the standard of care that was you know, published by ACOG and AWAN and the various folks who are having a say on, on this um, have said that intermittent monitoring is appropriate um, every 30 minutes in active labor and every 15 in second stage. And I would say generally that that is the policy that's happening around the country before active labor, which is now of course being defined as, as six centimeters. Um, we are, we're not really listening at all. Or if you're there early, it would be appropriate to document listening every hour. But once active labor is established, every 30 minutes is appropriate. And how long do we listen at those future listens? This is another interesting conversation. We want to listen long enough um, that we would catch one of those really ominous issues like brandycardia or a late D-cell. Um, and so really we want to listen through and after a contraction. So kind of a good rule of thumb is two minutes because that's, you know, contractions are about a minute and we've got space on either side. But that's, that's the part that isn't always happening in actuality. And um, you know, I, I hear a lot or I see birds. Sounds good. <laughs> it's probably not enough. We need to listen longer. 
Um, and then the other piece is when you go to listen, you know, when is a contraction coming? And so you, you oftentimes will end up listening for three or four or even five minutes when you go back again, if you don't time it correctly. But at the very least, we're listening for the end of a contraction or the time when a late D cell would be present. So a late D cell would happen after the peak of a contraction. So at the very least, we want to be listening through the peak for the end of the contraction and for at least 30 seconds after. And that would allow you to catch a late D cell. Every time you hear that, it wouldn't necessarily be a late D cell. It could be a variable. And that's sort of a more advanced awareness of what's going on. But if you're hearing a baby who is not tolerating, um, who is having a 15, you know, D cells defined as a drop off baseline for at least 15 beats over 15 seconds or more. Um, if, you've, if you're finding that, then that baby is telling us that they're, they're not comfortable with labor. They're not tolerating labor. They don't have the reserves to keep going. And whether it's a variable or a late doesn't really matter in out of hospital midwifery because there's absolutely no reason to stay home with variable D cells either, right? So early D cells are the only ones that we're comfortable with. And uh, how much we're comfortable with those depends a lot on, on training. <laughs> um, so yeah, how, how are you feeling so far? You've heard this before. Is it falling into place? Do you still have questions? Um, I am excited to hear what Michelle is going to say. And I would say that my other question, and I know this maybe is beating the horse, Augustine, but... I am curious about the charting part because yeah, I get, I'll get into that for sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I just want to talk about what it looks like in actuality and then yeah. I'll definitely talk about charting. Yeah. I Michelle. Making, oh, go ahead. So I was just going to say, I think it's making sense. And I also do appreciate that. I think in your fetal heart tones monitoring class, that part is really clear that you're okay, like, good. It's optimal if you can listen for two minutes at least, but at the very minimum, you got to catch this portion. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Michelle? Yeah. I wasn't actually going to say anything except, oh. yes, it's, <laughs> it's, it's landing. It sounds clear. Okay, good. And it's nice. Good. It's like nice to review kind of the cool. way that you talk about it in the course. Cool. Well, so in terms of documenting this, um, we kind of have to take a step back and look at the 30,000 foot view and say, what are we trying to accomplish with documentation, right? So what we're trying to accomplish with documentation is to very simply leave an accurate record of this baby's well-being. And then the secondary piece that most midwives are not thinking about is that they are trying to write a chart that is a standalone defensive document for themselves were there to be a bad outcome, yeah? So um, a medical chart and midwifery charts are considered medical charts because remember midwifery has been considered a subset of medicine in the United States. Um, so a medical chart should be, should function as a standalone item. So in other words, if you follow HIPAA guidelines, you complete the course of care, you complete the documentation of an episode of care within five days of rendering that care. Then you sign, close, authenticate the chart. It can no longer be edited. And three months, five months, three years down the line, when you're sitting in a courtroom, that 
evidence created around the course of care is considered to be the most accurate piece of data compared to any other testimony, right? That's how it's supposed to be. So a couple of things are true from that knowledge. Number one, we have to finish our charts and close them in a specific amount of time. And, um, you know, people always ask me like, what is the law? Well, it's not really law. Remember, it's policy. The, the, the HIPAA guidelines are just that, they're guidelines. But if you violate the guidelines, you do a couple of things. You put yourself open for actual HIPAA fines because they are enforceable guidelines. Um, but you would have to have a complaint against you and then they would have to start an investigation and then you would have to be fined. It's unlikely, we're small potatoes, right? But it's, it's a reality. And the fine for, for even ignorance, even if you didn't know the law or the, the guidelines, the fine is upwards of $50,000 per incident. So it makes sense for midwives to definitely be following HIPAA guidelines. And I have had some midwives say, but I don't bill insurance. HIPAA has nothing to do with insurance. <laughs> so I don't know where that got started. It is, it is about the portability of patient information and the privacy and the shareability and et cetera, et cetera. So I have a defensive charting course, definitely take that. But it, um, it is appropriate to document and close the chart, authenticate the chart so it's not editable um, as soon as possible. So the standard of care that has developed in the hospital setting is that um, physicians close, authenticate, close their charts before they move on to the next venue of care. So while they're in the hospital, they chart on all the hospital cases they're dealing with. But before they go to the clinic to see patients in the clinic, they close all their hospital charts and vice versa. When they leave the, the clinic, they have maybe three clinic days in a row, they close all those before they go on to have a call shift at the hospital, yeah? our life is not so scheduled. Would it be that it were so nice? Right? So instead, um, I really am going to just direct midwives that before you leave their house, finish the chart. Finish the chart. Before you get called to the next birth, before you leave the clinic day, at the end of the day, finish the chart. Now, exceptions will come up. You will have that secondary precipitous birth that you'll have to rush to or <clears throat> you know, your clinic day will go until 8 p.m. and you can't see straight, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like there will be situations where this has to be a little bit variable, but that still puts you within the, the HIPAA guideline of five days. If you, if you wait till the end of the week or you just let things slide, what happens is like three months down the line, you're like, oh my gosh, I have all these charts I never finished. We know how midwifery gets. We know how the busy life gets a lot of midwives are also moms and it's just too much to expect us to circle back with any real length of time and of course the more time that goes between the venue of care and certifying or, or authenticating the chart the less defensive that document becomes because it's believed to be less accurate right so so for lots of reasons your own workflow efficiency and defensiveness, finish the chart as soon as possible. And when you do that, it becomes a standalone um, document, a standalone defense. So in um, malpractice lawsuits, um, which is what we're all really afraid of, right? Because very few midwives carry malpractice. So in malpractice lawsuits, there is the prosecution, there's the defense, and then there's the chart, 
There's actually three entities. So we want that chart in our defense to be on our side, right? So it needs to be as thorough as possible. <clears throat> so how do we interpret this into real life? Um, you want to chart in such a way that you can reasonably make a uh, diagnosis or a conclusion. And then you want to chart enough that you can back up that conclusion. So um, in the, co the conclusion we're trying to make in our charting for fetal heart tones is that we have a category one baby. Yeah. So to define the categories really quickly, you can Google this, find it all over. Um, it was the Eunice Kennedy Shriver Association combined with ACOG and they the perinatology, they set up, they, they put together a, a way to classify this data, which we needed as well. Everyone needed this, right? Because you see these strips and you hear these babies, you want to say who's okay and who's not, right? So they put up this classification system. A, 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 a category one baby is great. They are fine. They're a good baby. They're happy. They're cruising along. They have a heart tones between 110 and 160. They have no um, brandycardia, no tachycardia. They have good moderate variability. They're not having variable or late D cells. It's what you'd expect. That's a great baby. A category three baby is in crisis. They're in absolute crisis. They need intrauterine resuscitation and obviously emergent delivery. A category two baby is indeterminate. Um, and if you ask a nurse in the hospital, oftentimes they'll say, all babies are category two. Well, they oftentimes see all birthers with medications on board. And so of course that changes things. But Category two babies, if you look at the algorithm of how to take care of them, one is just observe and the next one is emergent cesarean. One is just observe, the next one's emergency cesarean. So because it's a variable situation that's still evolving and we can't provide half of the outcomes, we also should not be taking care of category two babies. So for the purposes of out-of-hospital midwifery, we only take care of category one babies. Those are the ones we can imperatively, definitively say they're low risk, they're healthy, they are appropriate for midwifery care, right? So what are we trying to do with our defensive charting, apropos fetal heart tones in out of hospital setting is say, don't worry, this was a category one baby. That's what we're trying to say. So how would we say that? We would demonstrate that we knew how to and did determine baseline because every other determinant is based off baseline. We would say that there were no D cells present, or if there were D cells that we can clearly see over and over contraction after contraction that they were earlies only. So they were head compression, the baby moving through the pelvis, not cord compression or placental insufficiency. Yeah. We would clearly be able to say that we did not have a brandycardic or tachycardic episode. Right. So, so and that we had moderate variability. So they're kind of like three buckets that I want everyone to fill when they are charting fetal heart tones. One is baseline. You gotta fill the baseline bucket. If you don't know baseline, you gotta keep listening until you figure it out. And oftentimes the only reason you don't know baseline is because you actually have market variability because this baby's kind of all over the place. And that in itself is a finding. And you know what you do about that is a different conversation, but you need to fill the bucket of a baseline. Then we need to fill the bucket of variability. There are essentially four types of variability. And this is the beat to beat variation over two minutes, the peak to the trough, the highest to the lowest. And in any two minute segment of any listening gives you variability. 
Okay. And there's minimal or absent variability. There's, there's just no, this is a flatline baby. 121, 21, 21, 21, 21, 21, 21, 20. That's quite concerning. That baby's lost variability, right? That market variability I'm talking, which is more than 25 beats per, per, um, uh, range. And, um, the, the problem with market variability is that we can't determine baseline. So we can't say that this baby's healthy and normal. Sometimes you guys will see a market variability on listening prenatally at term. And if you do a little investigation, you'll say, oh, you had a, a grande Starbucks coffee this morning? Oh, okay. That's why your baby's all over the place. You know, so there can be reasons that are not ominous, um, right? Why we have market variability. But the big reason is that we can't tell, are these X cells? Are these D cells? Is this baby brandocardic? What's steep D cells? Is this baby, you know, like we can't tell what's going on. So market variability um, is a concern in that you can't justify that you have a category one baby. So what most of the time we're going to find is that moderate variability and moderate variability is between six and 25 beats per minute range. It's what you're used to hearing. It's what you would likely see on almost all strips. It's a baby who has good variability. In other words, variability kind of relates to how they're reacting to their uterine environment moment by moment. If you got up and started running right now, your heart rate would change. Ta-da. We see that we are reactive to our environment. And a baby is reactive even to his mother's contractions, movements, to touch, to little sugar being ingested, um, to contractions. All of these cause um, reactability, reactivity. And we see that in the variability of the heart tone. So one bucket, baseline. Next bucket, variability. And the last bucket is do we have any X cells or D cells? And uh, if you use uh, like electronic charting software, um, there's becoming more and more automated in terms of recording this. So in client care, for instance, there's a box where you can say, I did hear this, I didn't hear this. When you listened is also a defensive part of that charting. So those are oftentimes also now automated so that you don't have to type it out every time. But by recording those three pieces of data, Every time you listen, you were able to say in your, in your soap notes where you're writing the assessment of this mom and baby, you're saying low risk, category one, appropriate for midwifery care, whatever you're writing. And then in your O of your soap charting, your objective, you're saying, I knew there was baseline. Here's what it was. I knew there was variability. Here's what it was. And there was no D cells. There were minimal X cells. I saw very early you know, D cells, whatever you were writing, um, to justify that category one or low risk assessment. Does that make sense, Alana? I know that you wanted this data specifically. Sorry. Um, it does make sense. I have a couple of questions. Please, what that's you're... what we're here for. Yeah. One thing I heard you say is in terms of variability is the highest to lowest ending two minute segment. So I'm wondering, if that's actually in the definition that like in order variability, we would need to listen for two minutes to be able to say. Okay. It is, yes. Now, let me break that down a little further. Do we have to be dogmatic about only listen for exactly two minutes to get that? No, not at all, right? Because go back to the definition of variability. It's less than five beats difference. It's more than... 25, or it's in that normal six to 25 range, right? If you hear a baby in that normal range over a minute, 
it can definitely be extrapolated that this baby has normal variability, right? But it, conversely, if you went and listened and all you heard was 120, 120, 120, 120, 120, 120, 120, any normal person would keep listening for two minutes or more to say, Are, do we have any variability? Is this baby sleeping? Do we lost variability? What's going on here? So it's very, when we talk about variability, we used to talk about short-term variability, long-term variability, B2B variability, all of that's been scrapped. Now there's just one assessment and that is in any two minute segment, there should be moderate variability, right? Um, and I think it's important to note that like uh, one of the, one of the most predictive outcomes of fetal well-being is variability. So when when I look, you know, I, I do um, in my in my profession now as midwife in the midwife, I get to review charts. I get to help folks who have a question or have a bad outcome or having an investigation or a lawsuit or something that's like really challenging for them. And I get to look at a lot of charts. And I would say. Um, I agree with this statistical uh, uh, truth, and that is that loss of variability is one of the most predictive signs of poor outcomes. So when we're listening, um, babies can be, you know, dropping into the 80s, they can have a baseline of 110, they can do things that we used to think are really scary. But if they lose variability, that is really scary. So it's a very important thing to assess. And what all we're trying to say is that we can assess it and we do know that it's moderate variability. So when you listen, say you're catching right at the end of that contraction, baby's variable, that normal moderate variability. And, um, and we listen for say 45 seconds and you know, contraction ends, baby's in his normal range, there's moderate variability, that is very reassuring. And so if she was actively in transition and freaking out and in the tub and splashing water and you didn't get more than that, it's okay because your need to fill those boxes has been done, right? And we're listening often enough that it's unlikely we're gonna miss any of those pieces. Um, but it, it's all about context, right? So. If you go to listen and you only hear 120, nothing different, listen longer, right? Until you can say definitively, this is a category one baby. So we have to study what category one means to really understand how to fill those boxes. But the very simple middle of the night sleep deprived reminder is baseline, variability, the absence of D cells, right? That, those are the three boxes. Um, in terms of writing everything you gather, like I see some midwives who write 120, comma, 122, comma, 125, comma, 135. Have you ever seen that list on their lines? They're writing every single thing. Um, if you had an actual crisis going on, that's not a bad idea if you have the staff to do it. Now, do not go back and recreate this from memory. That is not evidence-based, right? You can't, after you've transported them to the hospital, go back and start writing a line of numbers as you remember it. That would not hold up in court and that would come out as actually falsifying the chart in lots of ways. So you can write late entries for sure. And you can finish the chart within 24 hours for sure. But that kind of moment to moment data gathering, you cannot get after the fact, right? So if you have enough people at your birth that you have a dedicated charter and you're calling out numbers and they're writing them down, it's not necessarily a bad idea 
because again, we're going back to what's the point of charting to create a valid record, which that obviously does, and to defend yourself. And so if you had a question about well-being, getting more data is the clinically appropriate step to do. Now, what you do with that data is really where it's important for midwives. You listen for 30, 40 minutes continuously writing every single number down and you don't transport, um, nope, not defensive, right? So uh, it depends on the data that you get and what you're gonna do with it. But while you're waiting for an ambulance, while you're trying to transport this baby who's not doing well and you have mom in knee chest or something, um, you know, that's all very defensive to say we were speeding down the highway and I was still capturing data. I know that when I dropped that baby off at the hospital, he was still a category two, right? She waited for an hour for her cesarean for the OB to get there. That's on them. So this is how your charting can sometimes really defend your actions as long as you respond appropriately. And that, that's the more tricky thing. Yeah. Alana, does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I, yeah, that totally makes sense. I guess while we're talking about like what we put in the chart or not, what do you recommend? Like in terms of a baseline, in terms of having 60 data points, let's say we're at that birth where we're with our first timer. We have plenty of time. We're there, we're not going anywhere. She's probably not six centimeters. We don't even have to be listening a crazy amount. Like, would you say, yeah, why not? Go ahead and put six. I would say, why not? Every uh -huh. chill birth gives you an opportunity to practice for crazy birth. <laughs> so why not? And yeah. most, most midwives like yourself are going with students. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to give students the opportunity to practice and get better at this skill. You're sitting right there. You're observing, you're supervising, but you don't have to be holding the Doppler or writing down all 60 data points, right? You can be using your metronome qualified ear to assess just auditorily, and they can be doing the real nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes of it, of figuring out what's going on. Yeah, I, I always, I, I mean, never miss an opportunity to get baseline. It's the only way we determine well-being further on. Now, some people ask, how often can baseline change? And the evidence is about every... 30 minutes is possible for baseline to change. So that's another reason why we listen every 30 minutes in active labor is to catch a baseline change. Yeah. Can, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure, sure. Change because I've heard just from so many people who do chart reviews that one of the, one of the things that they commonly hear from midwives who have poor outcomes when they're like misinterpreting fetal heart tones is that midwives commonly will say like, but the baby went back to baseline, but the baby went back to baseline. And obviously to begin with, if we're not actually establishing a real baseline, we have a huge problem. So I feel like you're making that part super clear, right? Like you have to do the full 10 minutes. You have to have a real baseline because that's the cornerstone of how you're gonna interpret every single subsequent piece of data related to fetal heart tones. But my question is, is whether or not there's more nuance to figuring out whether your baby is actually back at baseline when you're listening. So like, let's say we did our 10 minute listen. We've established that our baby's baseline is 135. We're listening on average, let's say we're not doing the gold standard of we're listening two minutes every time. We're listening 45 seconds to a minute. We're definitely catching the top of the contraction. We're listening for 30 seconds after the contraction stops. 
if I have those 30 seconds after the contraction has ended and I can see that that those counts, that 30 seconds worth of counts, whether I'm doing 15 second counts or six second counts or whatever I'm doing, is like, what do, how do we exactly constitute that it's back to baseline? If the baseline number is 135, that's such a specific. It's such a great question. Let me try to, let me try to ease it out for you. So <clears throat> baseline is rounded to the fifth beat. Yeah. Um, it's the most common rounded to the fifth beat over that 10 minute listen. Now we have baseline. Now we go back and listen. Like you said, 30, 45 seconds at the end of every contraction, we're minimally listen because there's a lot else going on in the room or she's pushing the Doppler away or whatever's happening. How do we know they're back in baseline? Well, that takes defining what is not baseline, right? So an axel or a D cell. So let's go back to the definition of an axel or a D cell, 15 points above or below for at least 15 seconds. So now we've got our actual range. So we take 135, add 15 in both directions. We have 120 to 150 now. Anytime the baby is within 120 to 150, they correspond to that already established baseline. And you can say they're back in range. For that baby in that labor with that baseline, they're in range. If the next most beaded number is within that range, they're back to baseline. I just feel like I'm loving you saying this and I feel like I'm just going to start saying that they're back in range because yes. it's so helpful to say they're back in range and it's so unhelpful to say they're back at baseline. Yeah, they mean the same thing yes. because of interpreting looking at a strip. But interpreting losing with your ears, I agree, I prefer range. So, so let's quit the counter scenario. Let's say you set a baseline of 135, you're listening appropriately, and you get a baby who is 110, 112, 115, 110, 112, 115, 110, 115, 115, 112, 115, 110. They're not in range. Stop. Everything goes back to the beginning. You don't know how to evaluate this baby till you have baseline again. So now you have to reset the clock and listen for another 10 minutes till you figure out, are these D cells? Has the baseline changed? Is this baby brandicardic? Right? Yeah. So it's lots to think about, huh? Deep breaths all around. <laughs> Michelle, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's so helpful. That was the, the question I was going to ask next of like, how do we know when the baseline changes? How do we decide how, you know, like exactly what you just answered. So I really yeah. appreciate that. In range. So they're either in range or they're not. And, um, and that's how you determine, okay, I need to listen for 10 more minutes. Otherwise you can right. assume we're using 135. Right. Because they are right. The definition of D cells is more than 15 beats and they, they keep their most commonly beaded number keeps landing in that same range. The baseline has not changed. And as long as we have moderate variability, we don't have D cells, that's a category one baby. It's shockingly more simple than we make it be. Here's a couple more um, myths that are out there that might spur some questions or, or just help in some way. Um, tachycardia is defined as over 160 for more than those two minutes, right? Um, and uh, I would say really probably more like 10 minutes because two minutes could even be um, an Axel. So more than 10 minutes is a new baseline change. And if it's over 160, it's called tachycardia. 
And there used to be a lot of paranoia with midwives about tachycardic babies. Now, certainly tachycardia can be because of drug use. It can be because of um, maternal fever. Um, it can be because of um, malpresentation, different things like that. Uh, choreamnitis, right? There, there's lots of reasons to imagine that tachycardia is a problem. But with good variability, tachycardia alone is not a sign of distress. And I think that's important for home birth midwives to know. So we use our bucket system again. We listen, we determine baseline. Baseline is tachycardic. We try to fill our variability, moderate variability. And no D cells. That baby is not necessarily in distress. There's not an emergency there. If there's a concern, we have to figure out why. Is she in too hot of a birth tub? <laughs> but, but it's not a reason to transport, right? Maybe mom is dehydrated. Maybe she's low on electrolytes. So we consider an IV. We consider position change. We get her out of the tub. We continue to assess. And oftentimes that will come down. So that's something I'd like to help midwives know that they don't have to rush off to the ER with the baby who's hanging out in the 170s. They just have to keep evaluating the environment and keep monitoring. Yeah. But loss of variability, however, even if we're in a normal range is quite concerning. And I honestly would transfer in the United States with the litigious world that we're in, I would transfer um, babies in a normal range, 120 to 160, who have lost variability. That example I keep giving 120, 120, or even if it's 140, 140, 140, 140, 140, 140, do a little ballotment, have mom drink something sugary. But if your next listen or continuously listen for 30 minutes, you're not getting any variability, that's actually a reason to transfer. Because loss of variability means that the baby is conserving resources. They, they are low on resources. So they, they're not responding to their uterine environment because they don't have anything extra, right? So <laughs> Ilka knows this. She saw me <laughs> with no variability last fall. Um, when you stop having resources, when you stop having calories, chi, energy, whatever you want to call it, right? When you stop having that, you can't effectively respond to your environment. That is someone who is very close to the edge. So when you see a baby who loses variability, it's very concerning. Then the other myth that I want to talk about, um, you know, so that, that is one myth because people will say, oh, but he was 140. <laughs> like, yeah, but 140, always 140 is a problem. And then the third myth I want to talk about is bradycardia, right? So 120 is no longer the bottom line. 110 is. So a baby in labor at 110 is totally appropriate. That's a normal baseline even though people used to freak out about that. And <clears throat> there's a lot of concern about um, early D cells, right? So you have to listen long enough and often enough to be able to determine what kind of B cell you're seeing, right? So you have to be able to listen through and between all the contractions to say, there are no variables here. The only time I hear a dip is exactly matching the, the contraction itself. These are early's okay, this is head compression. This is a baby getting squished as they come through the pelvis. Okay, that's fine. I'll hang out with that. We can totally have a home birth with early D cells. And how severe? Very severe, and it's still okay, right? So you don't have to run to the hospital with a baby that's even hitting 70, even 60 with contractions, provided that at the end of the contraction, they go back to range. 
and they don't shoulder, right? Or rebound. So we shouldn't be going, you know, 135, 135, 135, 120, 110, 100, and then back up to 125, 135. That's normal. But if we go 110, 130, 140, 150, 160, 160, 160, 160, 160, and then he comes back down again, that's called shouldering or rebounding. When they are uh, reacting to that D cell in a very extreme way, they're they almost mirror each other. So first they have a D cell, if you were to see this on a strip, and then they have a super ax cell. Those aren't ax cells, those are shoulders or rebounds. And that is another way to use resources very quickly. Um, so I don't necessarily transfer that minute, but you should be very aware that babies who are rebounding or shouldering are coming to the end of their energy reserves. Yeah? Questions about that? Those are my three myths I like to bust. Going back to the um, the tachycardia and the, um, I'm trying to remember what else I was gonna ask, but how long would you listen if you have a baby say in like the 170s, mm -hmm. how long would you listen before you're like, okay, actually I'm not okay with this? Yeah, well, so let's say we had a baby whose baseline was 150. Okay, so his range now is 165 on the upper limit. So I'm getting some 170s the next time I answer. I want to say, are we actually still in range and I'm just catching some axles or the upper limit of that range? Or has baseline changed? Um, so you want to listen long enough to determine that, which is 10 minutes um, at least. And you know, sometimes mom moves, birther moves, baby falls off the monitor. So that 10 minute listen might end up being 20 or 30 minutes because you have to get enough data points to be able to say consistently what you're hearing. Um, and be careful with that too, because if the data points that you're missing are all the ones around the contraction, that's not an effective listen, right? So, so you, have to, you have to be able to be conscious of the data points that you're gathering, which is again, why senior midwives need to be in the room when students are listening. They can absolutely handle the Doppler. They can absolutely make that chart of the 60 data points and use their critical thinking to explore what's happening here. But there are so many variables um, and such high level thinking and experience is required to evaluate this that there has to be senior midwife in the room for sure. I mean, NARM requires it, but we all know that isn't always the case. So I, I second that piece. So honestly, yeah. in terms of this 10 minute listen, we uh -huh. are all data through contractions, babies' movements. It's all of that for establishing the baseline. I'm sorry, we repeat your question. So I've, in terms of establishing baseline, when we're doing that 10 minute listen, I didn't think of this before, but one way that I was trained many, many moons ago to listen to baseline was actually that if there were a contraction or a movement, you didn't actually count those because you were trying to just hear the baby in between surges. That's not, that has nothing to do with what we're talking nothing. about, right? Nothing. Nope. You're, you're taking all of it. And so what you just said, like, if you're missing all those counts that are right around the time of the contraction, you're not getting good data to establish your baseline, right? I'm understanding. Correct. That. Okay. Correct. Great. Yes. Because let's, let's, let's pull this apart in layman's term. We want the baby to sound good all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter what stimulus is happening. The baby should still be good. 
So why would we skip the parts where there's the most stimulus? Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. So the listen is all the time, whatever's happening. So if you get there in early labor and you're going to just put a baseline together so that the next time you come back, you can see if they're still in the same range, that's totally fine. You go in early labor, check on your client, you establish a nice baseline and there's no contractions because she's still so early. They're coming 10 or 12 minutes apart. Okay, fine. That's your data. That's what's happening in a 10 minute. Listen, but later on, there should be contractions in that 10 minutes and the baby should still be normal during those contractions. Yeah. Um, I have another question. This was actually something I wrote in the comment section when I took the course, uh -huh. um, which is just, and I don't actually know that this fits anymore, but when we're talking about gathering our data and actually recording it in the chart, something that I've had a hard time with in the past is that some of these fields that are auto-populated by the EHRs will say like, you know, look like when you're documenting your range, it's su su supposed to sort of be that you're putting in what was the lowest number you heard and then what was the highest number you heard. And sometimes that can look like wicked marked variability that actually shouldn't be charted as such because you were never down for long enough. It was like, Right, because it's a blip. Six, a blip. It was yeah. just a blip. So I'm yeah. just thinking about if you have any advice in terms of like if I'm actually wanting to record all the numbers that I heard, especially as I'm like adopting a new way of listening. Does it seem fine to go ahead and just not document that as part of my range because it was so short? Yes. Yeah, so this, this is where we get into the real semantics and, and ethics question of it all. And I, and I, I do love this question because this is where I sit as well. <clears throat> I'm going to bring us back to the reason we're documenting, right? An accurate chart and a defensive note. So <clears throat> if you know this baby's fine, then it's fine to just write your assessment. Category one baby. And then you could write the baseline up in that section. But if you have questions and you want to defend yourself, you need to be more descriptive. Now, can you leave off data that doesn't help your assessment, but otherwise doesn't affect the outcome? Yes. But when you gather data and you leave it out of the chart, <clears throat> and I mean, this is, what, this is the tough part, but this is what I always say. I want every midwife in every situation, when they sit down to chart, I want them to think about first thought, worst thought. The first thought is likely this baby's fine and nobody's ever gonna see this chart again, <laughs> truly. Right? That's the first thought. But the worst thought is that I will have this read to me in court and will have to defend my actions after a really horrible, hellish, experience of a bad outcome, right? That, that's the worst thought. So <clears throat> most of us find ourselves somewhere in the middle at most births. This baby's probably fine and I'm going through the motions and I'm defending myself appropriately. So the answer to this question has to do with how worried you are. <laughs> if you're not worried at all, and that means your experience is very high, you know what you're hearing, you're very clear about it, you can document very little and leave a lot off. But if you're very new or very nervous, 
including the data is important in order to put your own heart at ease in order to defend what you're doing. Um, and also because there are always witnesses at birth. I mean, even, even when your team doesn't get there, grandma's there, the, the dad's there, right? There are always people who have the potential to testify against you. And so let's say that you were practically listening continuously while she's pushing because you were so worried about what that baby was doing. And you have one entry for one number for that whole 33 minutes of pushing. That'll come out in court, right? That you missed data or that you didn't record data. And that will bring into question the validity of the entire document. So it's a slippery slope. And I would say, again, the question has to go with how worried you are. If you're not worried at all, and you're certain this baby's doing fine, and you have brainstem ability to determine that, that's the important piece, then, then, you know, you could write 135 comma no D cells, and that's enough. But if you're worried, if you don't know exactly what you're doing, document everything that you do in the best way that you can. So when you actually establish baseline, this is an interesting charting recommendation. When you, when you establish baseline, you take that 10 minutes, you listen the whole time. When you're new, you're actually going to record all 60 data points in the chart, either with a standalone document that has 60 spots for you to write it down or on the line, like some do, comma 120, comma 120, comma 125, comma 135, whatever you're going to do. Um, <clears throat> later on, when you get more and more experienced, you might just write the baseline number and not all of the defensiveness of how you set that baseline. And again, this goes to how worried are you about the scenario, right? How, how much do you need to defend yourself? And I think, you know, I mean, this is probably a controversial conversation, but I think in the United States, ah, uh, probably everyone needs to defend themselves pretty well. I mean, certainly some states are more hostile than others, but, you know, there have been midwives arrested every single year in the last five years in the country for doing their job, you know, arrested for being in their profession. Um, and then that doesn't even count all the, I don't know, maybe 100 more that have to field investigations uh, lawsuits, audits, they have to somehow prove their activity. Um, you know, I talk to no less than 50 midwives a year who are in some kind of investigation, audit, lawsuit situation. Um, and, I, you know, the defensive chart is one of the only things that will defend you because, you know, there's no jury of your peers in a, in a midwifery legal proceeding. Much of what you are are going to be up against is ignorance and even trying to, to explain who you are, what you do and why it's a valid way to do things. So the very least, like don't shoot yourself in the foot and have a chart that doesn't defend you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big subject. <laughs> I, see, I see glazed eyes. <laughs> I feel like I stressed you all out. Sorry. <laughs> Well, Ilka, we haven't heard from you much. Can I can I pick on you for a second? Because um, oh. students students are oftentimes um, 
uh, have a lot of emotions around fetal heart tones. First of all, they're the ones that get called to do them at two, three, four, five in the morning um, <laughs> while the midwife sleeps. And uh, second of all, uh, they feel really vulnerable. I mean, I, I just did a podcast interview um, a couple sessions ago with, with Katie McCall, who was um, not only um, uh, sanctioned by the board of California, but also was sued in civil court for an outcome as a student. And um, this is, you know, something that there's a lot of question around. And I wonder how, when you reflect on midwifery work and especially, you know, documenting and checking fetal heart tones, how, how what do you reflect on as a student? Oh boy, that's a big one. I know, um, <laughs> for you in the deep end, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's just really interesting to see and hear so many people practicing in so many ways and, and what is accepted as the community standard and how like bringing that in juxtaposition with what you're teaching about defendability, right? And frankly, it's a little confusing, but I also, I truly believe that that like fetal heart tone monitoring is the way to know if the baby is okay. And it's really important. As a student, I don't feel comfortable doing it all by myself at this point, even though I feel like I'm getting there and I'm getting the hang of it. It really feels like I want to be really sure of it. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't heard that story that you just mentioned, but that kind of puts a little spin on it. Like, oh, I can be actually sued or responsible for some outcome that does not sound good to me um yeah but I also I, I have a pretty yeah. tough skin I, I I feel like I'm I'm not a scaredy cat in that way like I'm not approaching this as things to be scared of it's more about like can I be accurate and can I be really on it like pay attention to all these different things yeah. and hold them all and do I have the capacity for it and how do I grow this capacity and how do I learn this way of thinking and the what you said the, the critical thinking and the clinical thinking that's yeah. what my interest is yep yep and it's it's not an instant thing I think I, you are very a, a wise and mature student coming to this and and you know you're not going to like suddenly be a midwife um but but I think there are some students who, who come to this and be like, you just put some gel and then you put it on and then you hear, you know, you read the number and then like, why it's so hard about heart tones? <laughs> like, um, um, you know, it's, uh, it's always scary to me to see uh, some of those scenarios, but uh, I'm really glad that you're with these preceptors and I'm really glad that you are so invested in, in the process and, and, and also knowing of your own boundaries. Um, you. you know, some of the follow-ups I would say, and I think you embody this and know this definitely, but, um, it's really important for students and new midwives to be cognizant of what, to, what they don't know. And that's a hard thing to conceptualize, but, um, but staying open to learning and continually chasing, um, evidence-based care is, is a lifetime journey. It's, we, we never arrive. 
Um, yeah. You know, like I read a study um, just a couple of weeks ago that that has changed some of my protocol on this. Um, th there's some new evidence showing that if baseline changes and it trends upward over the course of labor, we have worse outcomes. So it's still in range, right? But the baseline at the start of labor was 135 and then another assessment you might get a 145 and then by the end of labor it's 155. Those babies have a higher need of resuscitation, of meconium staining, of NICU admission, et cetera, et cetera. So like we're always learning, we're always chasing mm -hmm. that data. And I think that, um, you know, students who are listening or, um, you know, new midwives who are listening, uh, you're never going to come to a place where you arrive in midwifery. You know, like there's no end to this. <laughs> um, you know, I've been, I've been actively studying it. I'm, I'm incredibly neurodiverse. So I like hyper-focus on midwifery for, uh, you know, many, many, many years now. Um, and, and um, you're never, you're never going to get to the point where you, you get it all like, and, and the time, like if you, if you're looking for a preceptor who does present that content or that kind of perspective, like, Mm, that's where danger happens. I think we mm -hmm. have to be in beginner's mind at all times. Like we have to yeah. be in that wonderment and that awe and that humility of not knowing while we continue to gather more and more content. And I would say at every birth I attend, and it sounds like you, you guys are the same at every birth. I'm like, Hmm, <laughs> I wonder what's, wonder what's going to happen. You know, like, I don't, I don't, pretend to know the outcome in any way. And even a baby who's doing, doing fine, um, you know, can tell us they're not quickly. So we have to, we can't get complacent. We have to follow these, this, this minimal piece. And I think that this has been demonstrated over and over in the literature. Um, there's many, many uh, uh, studies, and I can link some in the comments of this uh, conversation, but there's many studies to show that um, intermittent monitoring with, with Doppler auscultation is, is as safe or safer than continuous monitoring. So we're not trying to, you know, push the envelope here. There have been many studies showing that this is very, very appropriate. And these are in hospital studies. So um, with the continuity of care, the one-on-one -on -one care that out-of-hospital provides, it's even safer. So uh, yeah, anyone listening, I want to make sure that you know that this is this is not some new idea. Uh, intermittent auscultation has been happening since before fetal monitoring was invented. It has been justified and, and validated over and over and over again. But this is for low risk people. And so when we talk about midwifery, we only take care of low risk people. And how do you tell if they're low risk? That is the question, right? And this is what's always in debate, but for the purposes of fetal heart tone monitoring, they are category one babies, those are low risk. So we have to be able to say that we know their baseline and it's in range and we know that they are having good moderate variability and they have no D cells. So hopefully that helped you guys. Are there any follow-up questions? Did we, did we cover all the things? Do you feel ready to go out there and attend to birth? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was lovely. That was super, super helpful. Good. I'm so yeah. glad. It's really my honor. Uh, I feel really privileged to be in this midwifing the midwife role these days. Um, I, I do still attend some births, but mostly I, I do this. And it makes me so happy to see your beaming faces and to, to hear like there's an air of confidence now. And that, that just makes me so happy. Yeah.
I have to say I locked out with my preceptors. Yeah, you are did. Definitely in the beginner's mind and geeking out on everything with me. It's just real really fun. It's the way you have to be actually to have good outcomes for sure. Well, so in the defensive charting course, we go through a lot of charting of these exact situations. And in the fetal heart twin course, we even have some auditory practice so that you can get out your watch and listen and practice charting. We've got examples of charting all of that. And obviously some great questions and some great content. And you can find all that on midwiferywisdom.com. It's been a pleasure. I'm so excited to say that we will see Ilka this fall at the Midwifery Wisdom Conference. She's going to be a speaker and going to lead some of the retreat bodywork stuff. I'm so excited. Um, and you, again, you can sign up for that. It's our first inaugural conference and um, it's going to be pretty epic. I have to say, we've got 30 speakers who are kind of the expert of the country. So I feel doubly blessed and Ilka will be with us. Thank you all so much. I hope you have a fantastic day, evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much. Bye friends. Bye. Bye.